When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This new study is not saying, and I'm not saying with this formula, well, stop earning at X level. What I'm saying is if you don't invest in your emotional wealth, it does not matter what your earnings are. Hello, and welcome to Planetary's podcast, Future Rich. I'm your host, Barbara Ginty, and I'm also a CFP, and I am thrilled uh, to have our expert guest here, Manisha McCord. Did I say your name right? I'm terrible at pronunciation. Not to worry. Manisha. Rise Manisha. Oh, my God. Rise with Patricia. Oh, gosh. My pronunciation is terrible. Well, I'm super excited to have you on because you are a highly credentialed personal finance expert, which is something that we don't see that often. So I'm very excited to bring you to our listener base. And they probably have already heard of you because you're very well known. Um, but yeah, will you tell our listeners who maybe haven't heard of you yet a little bit about your background and your designations? Sure. So I, I can't believe this. I'm 53 this year. So I've been in the industry for three decades and I spent the first 15 years of my career working on the institutional side of financial services. I was what's called a buy-side equity analyst and portfolio manager. And my job was to identify uh, investments and put them into portfolios for large corporate clients, foundations, endowments, pension funds. And then I had a serendipitous switch after that first 15 years um, I had done my MBA at Harvard Business School and a dear friend of mine from Harvard Business School who also was in finance, we noticed that so many of our super smart girlfriends who went into strategy or operations or marketing were asking us very similar base questions about personal finance. So we decided to write a couple of personal finance primers geared at women in their 20s and 30s. And that got me interested in flipping to the other side of the business. So I moved on to the individual side where I uh, spent the last 15 years, um, gosh, doing a wide range of things. I briefly had my own wealth management practice. And uh, the part of the that chunk of work that I love the most was serving as a spokesperson around women in wealth issues for a variety of large RIAs. And, you know, a lot of people may not be familiar with the distinction between the CFA and the CFP designation. The CFA, honest to God, I thought it was harder than going to Harvard Business School. It's a three-year 
Literally. Yeah, I, yeah, I think it's the hardest exam you can take. Yeah, I, 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 it's three years. Mm-hmm. Um, you take one level each year mm-hmm. and the amount you, of... What level each year if you pass? Right. Not right. everybody yeah, passed. Not a lot of people don't. So it could be like a three to five year plan if you don't pass one level, which is very common. Yeah. Oh yeah. Many, many people don't. And it's because you have to work while you're studying for this exam. And the amount of work that goes into the exam is equivalent to a graduate school course for each of the levels. So um, I was lucky to be single and childless when I went through this process in the nineties and, and that made it a bit easier and uh, so that really helped with the investment side of things. Yep. And then the CFP, I'm such, I'm so passionate about it because I feel like it really is starting to set some baseline, rigorous minimum mm-hmm. standards and ethical guidelines that we can now use as individuals when analyzing who we might want to work with as a financial yep. professional. So that's a little bit about my background and what I've been doing professionally in the financial services industry. Yeah, that's incredible because I also previously worked on Wall Street. And so when I was deciding if I was going to stay on Wall Street or not stay on Wall Street, it's very common if you're working on Wall Street to sit for a CFA or to consider sitting for the CFA. A lot of your colleagues are studying. The conference rooms are filled on the weekends and at night for people who are studying. Um, so I was like thinking, toying with it. And then I decided I was going to leave institutional finance. And so I was like, I need to do a different destination. Yeah. But we talk, we talk a lot about it on the show because if you're looking to work with somebody and evaluating, I agree, it's a great baseline for someone if, with personal finance if they have a, CF, CF, a CFP, but it's even great if they have a CFA. It's just so rare that you have both because of the different types of finance. I, uh, I have been obsessed with money, which I know we'll get into a little bit, yeah. but I've been obsessed with money for a long time. And so um, I enjoyed going through all of those different uh, designation curriculum. And one of the things that I found fascinating, and I might just do this for fun, is there's another designation bubbling up, which is the Financial Therapy Association's. Oh curriculum and designation as the industry moves towards more holistic mm-hmm. financial planning around people's entire lives. There's this kind of fine line that moves between being a financial advisor and being kind of a therapist, therapist. and and being sure to navigate that in a very ethical and mm-hmm. clear cut way with regards to your skills has been something that's prevented a lot of advisors from wanting to go too far down that line. And the financial therapy association is a, is a recently birthed organization and they're really helping to set some guidelines for advisors to use, to know where the boundary is. Yeah. Where the, the line is. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's fascinating. Cause yeah, I think that the interesting thing, especially with the CFP is you take a more holistic approach, but then it sometimes can border into, is this therapy or, mm-hmm. you know, guidance, but I think it's a great segue into considering yourself as a holistic person. When we talk about finances. So your previous, you just wrote another book, your previous two books uh, were geared towards women and their twenties and thirties, more of a roadmap of things to avoid and look for with your personal finances. 
And I love this idea when you talk, this is more about a cult. Yeah. Would you like to give a little explanation? Sure. So what I came to realize as my 50th birthday rolled around was that I had spent my entire adult life as a human doing and not a human being. And the reason is the mental model that I was organizing my priorities and life choices by was a pretty flippin' sick one. And in my case, it was self-worth equals net worth. Mm -hmm. And what I found was with that mindset, it felt to me like no matter how much money I earned, it was never enough. And I don't mean that about like the, the stuff. I mean it as money as a measure of external validation for your success. No matter how much money I earned, it was never enough. No matter how many accomplishments I achieved, it was never enough. No many how no matter how many accolades I received, it was never enough. And I literally felt like I was trapped in this cult of never enough because our modern society encourages us to think that the answer to anything that ails us is more, mm -hmm. do more, be more, try more, yeah, achieve more. Yep. Exactly. And I thought, wow, when you start kind of looking at some of the characteristics that define a traditional cult, getting sucked into this kind of mindset, which is completely applauded by modern society, really isn't that different than falling into a cult. And to me, I thought of it as the cult of never enough. Yeah, I mean, it makes complete sense. And I think that when you're meeting with individuals and talking about their finances, often, and I'm sure you've heard it is, well, do I have enough save, right? That's like the number one question is, do I have enough? Do I have enough? And it's a question that you really can't answer for somebody, right? Because there are so many parameters around that, like textbook says, yes, maybe you have enough, but who knows what your goals and your objectives are. So I think it's very interesting to talk about what is enough and what that means to each person is probably going to be different. Yeah, that, that, that you, Barbara, you've just nailed it. What is enough is at the core of so many different intersections mm -hmm. between financial advice and self-reflection. The thing that I struggled with early on was the fact that as you know, you wear an advisor hat and you can use a Monte Carlo and you can plug in all these assumptions about yeah. how much you're going to be saving each year and what kind of returns you think you might receive and what inflation might be and at what rate you want to draw down your money at what age. And then you play with all of those different inputs to say, oh, well, you have enough. But what I found was for quite some time, the Monte Carlo told me I had enough, but I didn't believe I had enough. And it, and again, it wasn't about, well, I don't have enough to buy this or buy that. Mm -hmm. It was a scarcity. Yeah, it was yeah. a scarcity mindset combined with the feeling that I still was not enough as a 
person and I was using money as the metric to validate me as a human being. Mm -hmm. And when that's the case, they're literally, it's never enough. never enough. And was there like one specific catalyst catalyst where like, this is what you recognize was like, Oh, hold on. Maybe I need to reevaluate like the Monte Carlo, the projections say I have enough, but really I'm not feeling like I have enough was, or was it just something that happened over time? Or was there like a real catalyst that said, hold on, let me stop and reevaluate how I'm calibrating this whole situation. Yeah. I had a lot of warning signs uh, along the way getting divorced because I was never present for my spouse. And, you know, just to give an example of where my mindset was, my ex-husband was 20 years older than me and he was an avid off-road motorcyclist, had a horrible accident in a a fairly unpopulated area, was taken to a 16-bed hospital and told he might lose his leg. And he had to go into emergency surgery. So he called to let me know. I was doing a bunch of meetings in San Francisco. I remember this so clearly. I'm staying at the Four Seasons wearing my fancy clothes. And I'm thinking like, well, you know, I mean, there's nothing I can do about it. The surgeons will do the surgery. It ended up being a, a success. He was in extreme pain and not able to leave the hospital for at least a week. And so this is how sick my thinking was. Well, nothing I can do for him. Might as well keep working. I'll show up when he's ready to go. And, you know, it's that kind of behavior. I didn't realize at the time that was a sign. You know, another example is slowly over the years, I started to realize that the only Christmas cards or holiday cards I received were from people who I paid money to. So, you know, an assistant or um, the woman who cleans my home that all of my friends had dropped me off their list because I had missed all the pivotal events in their lives. Mm -hmm. Weddings, birth of children, divorces, and I didn't heed them until I got very sick. And that often is one of the things that causes people to wake up. Yeah. Yeah. And in my case, it literally was a near death situation. Ironically, I had had a different near death situation. I think it was like five, six years before that. And that first one wasn't enough to stop me. It, It was the second one that required me to take a medical leave of absence, be on bed rest. I could stay awake only about five or six hours a day. My autoimmune system was completely attacking my body and no one could figure out what was wrong with me. There was no diagnosis. They didn't know what it was. Right. Okay. After testing for every kind of tumor or malignancy and the ultimate hypothesis was that I quite literally was working myself to death and my autoimmune system was just burnt out and said, we we have nothing left to defend you with. So good luck, change your behavior or you're out of here. You're out of here. And and that was my catalyst. Yeah. So stress, because like stress causes a, 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 a myriad of terrible things on your body. People don't realize, but yeah, it can literally kill you. It is shocking. I mean, one of the things people, you know, you think, ah, stress, 
Uh, well, all of that cortisol coursing through your body, first of all, doesn't do a whole lot for your adrenal um, mm -hmm. glands. Listen. In my case, the earlier health issue, I got bit on a trip to Laos by an infected mosquito and came down with dengue fever, which normally is something you can millions of yeah. people get it. It's like malaria you can recover yeah. from. But I had a cascade of Murphy's Law events that ultimately put me in a situation where there was serious odds of organ failure. And so that had dramatically weakened many of my key mm -hmm. organs. And yep. so when you combine that with the fact that stress also elevates your blood sugar levels, which can start cascading into a whole nother level of potential damage to vital organs. Yeah. Stress can kill and we take it too very lightly. lightly. Okay. So that's a very big catalyst. So there were some early warning signs, so kind of domino effect, but it didn't really trigger a change for you until, which it I was smacked in the face. Yeah. Until there was really no other option. It was like, okay, I'm on bed rest essentially. And so then how did you come up? So you came up with a new calculation of like, which I love because I'm a math Excel person. So it makes sense that there'd be a different calculation, a different formula here. You came up with a new formula of how to kind of measure what is enough. So, yeah. I, don't want to give it, I don't want to give it all away. We want everyone to read the book, obviously. But So what happened as I was in recovery was I started to think, okay, you know, I'm a reasonably smart human being. This was not how I envisioned my life going when I graduated from Wellesley College in 1992. How mm -hmm. did I go so far off track and I decided the best way to answer that question, because I started my career as a research analyst, was to dive into the research. And what I found was that there are a range of interdisciplinary factors that can lead one to develop a never enough mindset. I won't go into them in uh, excruciating detail here. I do in the book, but the four are small T traumas, things that happened to us before age 25, to which we okay. develop a defensive behavior pattern that served us then, but doesn't continue okay. to serve us in our adult years, cultural norms, societal influences, and even evolutionary biological impetuses. And when you okay. stir all that together, if you end up having issues in those four areas or any of those four areas to a sufficient enough degree, you can develop a very toxic mindset for how you are thinking about living your life. And mm -hmm. as I walked through that, I realized I needed to replace self-worth equals net worth as the operating system in my brain. Mm -hmm. And the one I came up with was after my research was financial health plus emotional wealth equals what I like to call money zen. I define money zen as a state of calm, confidence and clarity around both your relationship with money, but also the role that you want it to play in your life. And really the key power behind this equation, financial health plus emotional wealth, is it doesn't disregard the need to have 
a degree of comfort about what you are doing in your financial life. It's not saying money doesn't matter because if you don't have money, it matters. It does does matter. Yeah, absolutely. And especially if you have a health problem, money also matters. Completely. And in a nation with limited social safety nets, with such a wide disparity of income, lack of widespread financial education, financial health matters. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Our next partner is AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I drink it literally every day. I gave AG1 a try because I was tired of taking so many supplements and wanted a single solution that supports my entire body. I drink AG1 in the morning before making my coffee and it makes me feel ready to take on my day. It helps me save time and makes my life so much easier because it's just one scoop in the morning. If you're looking for a simpler, effective investment, For your health, try AG1 and get five free AG1 travel packs and a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com forward slash future rich. That's drinkag1.com forward slash future rich. Check it out today. And in fact, there's an interesting study that came out of collaboration between Princeton and Penn you and I would have heard this stat over and over. I'm not sure how many people outside the industry have, but there's been a long quoted stat that says $75,000 is the amount of money you need to earn in order to be happy. And earnings beyond that don't make you happy. And most of us who have lived on the East or West coast roll our eyeballs and think like, okay, do you think you can raise a family on that, on the East Coast. So we knew something was off with that number. Turns out the original folks who did this research teamed up with some other academics and what they discovered is they were wrong, not necessarily because the number was wrong. That number differs for everyone. For a single person in the Midwest, yeah, that might be entirely true. I grew up in a small town in Indiana and that would have worked. Yep. But what they found was there is a level that varies for each people. But once you have hit that level of earnings and financial health, in incremental earnings beyond that level do not increase your life satisfaction unless it's coming on a foundation of broader well-being. Yep. And what I found was that I had invested in a very savvy manner in my financial health, but I was bankrupt when it came to emotional wealth, absolutely bankrupt. And I also realized this can affect people of a wide range of incomes, educational Mm -hmm. levels, ethnicities, geography. And that's why I wanted to codify it in a book because I realized this is not a problem that is defined by any particular income or net worth level. 
Yeah. And I think that's so important to say that it's not specific to one arena, because as you said, when they said that number, yeah, I've read the number. Yeah. And I think at some point they raised it to like a hundred and you're like, yeah, that's great. Like if you're living in, I don't know, North Dakota as a single person, yeah, I'm sure a hundred thousand is great. But if you're living in Manhattan or Brooklyn or LA or one of the other very expensive cities, like it's not as great. And what if you have a dependent? Yeah. So I totally totally agree but the concept of like you have to have more than just money makes sense because like yeah they said a certain earnings over whatever that number is for everybody it's like a diminishing return almost if you will right or a neutral return that you could make another 50,000 but it doesn't change anything about your life because you've already had enough for that person of money and the thing though that i think and it's nuanced but i think this is really important is it's not this new study is not saying and i'm not saying with this formula well stop earning at x level what i'm saying is if you don't invest in your emotional wealth it does not matter what your earnings are once you are earning a livable wage wage the thing to invest in that society does not encourage us to invest in is right. our emotional well-being, our emotional wealth. Right. And you see, if you think about it, if we just like did an investment analogy, you're putting all of your money or all of your time and effort just into the investment component, right? Just into the net worth component, earnings component. And if you don't spread it out amongst all the things that make you happy as a person, you end up bankrupt or deficient in those arenas. Right. And you just have the net worth component. I love that you mentioned it's like an asset allocation. It is. It's like when you put all of your energies into financial health, it's like you have a portfolio that is allocated 100 percent in stocks. And why do we have bonds and cash? They serve as a, a buffer. Mm-hmm. for volatile periods. And then also as we get older, they help serve as a risk mitigation tool. Yep. Well, that's exactly what having emotional wealth in your life, connections with people yep. outside of yourself and causes outside of yourself and giving outside of yourself. You know, think of it as the bonds and cash in your portfolio yeah. that help balance out life's inevitable ups and downs. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a really interesting time for you to, have experienced this and also then to write the book about it, because as you know, there's a lot of talk around fire, right? Financially independent, retire early. And the whole concept of that is to basically fill up those other buckets, right? So I like working, but I don't like working enough to sacrifice traveling until I'm 75 or spending time with my children or whatever those other facets are that are important. So I think it's really interesting because we see on the show when people talk about fire, they're, they're usually the root in that is not that they don't like their job or they don't want to keep working. It's that the working has taken up too much of the time. And so they're, Mm -hmm. they're feeling like they're sacrificing hobbies or time with family or time with friends. And so this concept of enough is hard to define, especially when you're considering that. So what is it like, how do you balance all of those facets of life? And I agree, it shouldn't just be, which is unorthodox as a financial advisor. Right. But it shouldn't all be one thing. So I always say to our clients is I'm going to tell you to spend your money and enjoy your money. Cause the whole reason you have it is to enjoy the other pieces of life, right? It's not just to stock it away and look at it on a piece of paper. Although that's nice can be, but so I think it's a, it's a very relevant time because I think we've seen since COVID where people got had all that extra free time where they were able to have dinners at home, right. And, and invest in hobbies 
I just think it's a very interesting time. This is something that had never been talked about, right? So I've been in the industry, I think, 17 years and institutional. But no one ever talked about that. Like, oh, make sure, make sure you have that. Like, and I don't even want to say balance. I don't love that. But like, make sure you still have time for the other things in life, right? Because you, if you focus too hard on one thing, just like if you did all one stock, it can be dangerous. Absolutely. And I have been amazed at the number of people who have read the book and come back and said, oh my God, I feel like you are speaking directly to me. I've also not been surprised that there are a number of people for whom this book is not the right time in their life to hear this message. Mm -hmm. I feel like you have to be ready for it. Uh, I, I personally hope with the book, I might be able to, I mean, my main goal is to help people who are also trapped in the cult of never enough, have a clear cut roadmap or blueprint that they can use to get out of that. My secondary goal is to help folks who haven't quite made it into the cult, but are heading in that direction, make a hard left turn and get the heck away from that kind of that kind of thinking. And certainly with fire, this is a movement that from a very early stage on in careers, people are thinking in this more broader financial health plus emotional wealth manner. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm de- so I'm definitely in the jean jacket cult, which I just joined. So I now have a jean jacket, but I would say I'm probably in this cult and this has been something that I've transitioned out of a little bit. But as you know, when you work in finance, the threshold is always based on numbers because that's just how the industry works. And working with individuals who, as you probably saw, sometimes people don't get to enjoy retirement not be- and you have to plan for it and save for it because you hope that you're there to enjoy it. But sometimes you get sick and you don't or your spouse gets sick. So then th- therefore you can't, you're not, not, going to most times the spouse won't leave the sixth spouse right so then they both don't enjoy i have three girlfriends i had three girlfriends two of whom were doctors who've passed i'm completely cancer um in two cases and one was a surgery that went wrong and she had a horrible infection and it took her life People think, especially in your 40s, when you're really starting to head up into that curve, like, man, like, look where I'm going to be in my late 50s and I'm 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 rocking it. And you should keep doing this stuff that you love professionally. But it is true. Stuff comes out of the blue. And now I look at the obituaries of the New York Times every day. And for anybody who is in their 50s or 60s, I open it up to look at why they passed and the reflections on their lives. And then there's another piece to this, particularly for us women, is elder care. My parents are in their early 80s, and by the grace of God, they're in good health. But my dad had two serious incidents where we needed to come together as a family and rotate to have him have full-time care. And at that time I was working pre-COVID on a location independent basis, which we would now call remote work. And I was able to make it work. 
but I was an executive at that time. If I were part of the 80% of the American population who's busting their butt in jobs where they don't have that flexibility, that often can be a big reason why you end up having to take a break. And I can give you an example of a girlfriend of mine who was the CFO for a very prominent media personalities, multifaceted portfolio, earning an incredible income. And her sister got cancer and her sister had a child. And then her parents both got ill all at the same time. At the same time. It always happens that way. It's never one year, two years later. It's usually when things go wrong, at least what I've seen, when things go wrong, they go fantastically wrong. It's like every... Everything goes wrong. She went to a top three um, MBA program and her career completely derailed. Yeah. And coming back in, she's not earning the income that is anything close to where she was. And so, uh, you know, the the point is you really don't know no. what's going to yeah. happen. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, can, I completely agree with you. And, and when you work with people enough, like, you see these sad stories where people don't get to enjoy the money. And I always say it's a balance. You need to save enough. So if you're healthy and having a great time, we're comfortable because you don't want to go back to work at, you know, be a Walmart greeter at 85 because you didn't plan to be around. So you have to plan to be around and be comfortable, I think, but also know that tomorrow is not promised and you need to also, the money serves a purpose, which is meant for, for enjoyment. But yeah, I find it particularly fascinating because we, I've been exploring changes with the business and it's very hard Mm -hmm. in a meeting to articulate, well, I'd like to work less. Like that doesn't just seem like it goes over very well. Like I'm hoping we can get the staff to a four day work week. No one, when you're doing a revenue number meeting and talking about goals for the business, nobody really, I don't think it's well received, which is sad, I think. Because if our productivity is the same, and I actually think productivity will go up is what I think. Mm -hmm. I actually think that the staff will be happier, will appreciate that they have balance that's worked in for them. That So I actually, and we're going to, you know, it's been a conversation on the table that I don't think it's going to be an overnight change to do this, that we have to work towards it. But if we work towards it together, I think we can get there. But um, I've been very hesitant to be like completely, I don't want to say completely transparent, but like hi- I highlight certain things over other things. To me, it's a no brainer. If I have a working mother for me, she has zero time outside of work. That seems miserable, right? Like it, if we can get the same work done in four days, even if maybe it's like 15 minutes more a day or 30 minutes more a day, but you have a great life and you can see like, oh, I could do this forever because I like my job. It mentally stimulates me. I like my colleagues. I make good money. But then I also have enough time with my family and my friends and my children to me, it seems like a no-brainer from a even. I'm a small business, so I have to look at profitability, right? If I right. can't be profitable, I can't pay the salary. So obviously, math comes into play. But I will say that from this cult of never enough, like even in business meetings, as a business owner, you don't want to be I, personally. I don't want to be thrown into like, oh, she's trying to run a lifestyle business, right? It, there's and what's interesting is when you look at other countries that place a different level of emphasis on the role of work in one's identity. Yeah. The Scandinavian countries are a classic example of this. It's not like the countries are falling apart and the businesses are not accomplishing anything. Yeah. 
There's something to be studied there. But yeah, so I think this is um, relatable for like individuals, but also like if you're a business owner as well, right? Of at what point is it enough? At what level do you want to get to? Because you can always get to the next. I think especially here in the United States, the sky is really the limit of like, how do you want to do? I think we're very lucky and fortunate that we can say you can earn whatever you want to earn. You can build whatever you want to build. And it's really unlimited, which is wonderful that you have that no ceiling in theory of what you want to build or produce, but you can get caught up on the hamster wheel and and learning how to say what's enough for you, I think is a very, very good practice. So I'm very excited to get to read the whole book. I haven't read the whole book, but I'm very excited about it because I, that was a question I was very lucky to have a great mentor. And so he's Mm -hmm. asked me before, like questions, I think his question was like, do you strive to fly on a private jet? And I was like, no, he's like, good. I just wanted to make sure your feet were on the ground. He was like, because if you have that mindset of, I need to have every single thing, you can really get trapped. You can. And one thing that I reflect on that I wish I had taken to heart early on during my institutional career I had the opportunity to work for two self-made billionaires and I was on the private planes and I saw their lives up close and personal. And honestly, it's difficult when you have that kind of money. Everybody wants you to donate to their causes. You never know if somebody's trying to be your friend because they like you or they like your money. And managing it all is the the lifestyle that comes with it is complex. And then you worry if the people who are helping you manage it are then going to talk about your personal things. And, you know, I mean, it sounds wonderful to be in that private plane world, but when I got to watch it as a fly on the wall, I thought, wow, there's a lot of downside. And if you spend your life striving for that, and it's not what inherent, The end lifestyle that results for some people is one that works well, right? But not for everyone. And usually for the people that get to that level, they've sacrificed their life to do that. Mm -hmm. It's a complete life sacrifice. So Mm -hmm. it's usually if they build that type of work, from what I've seen, and you probably saw it closer, but it's usually not, yeah, they get access to things, but they've dedicated their whole life to building whatever businesses that generates it. The lifestyle and like the luxury that comes with like free time is usually for the next generation. It's usually not for the person who built it. No. And uh, what I've observed is oftentimes the, in the building of it, you lose your family your kids, your relationship with your kids, your relationship if you partner with someone, your relationship with your extended, the cost on a emotional wealth Mm -hmm. level can be very, very high. And I highlight this simply to say that your mentor asked such a wise question. And now whenever uh, I am asked to do I'm in kind of a different stage of my life. I've moved on. I'm sitting on a corporate board. That's my primary function. I also sit on a national nonprofit around financial education. And those are the two primary things that I do. When I get asked to do speaking events or media engagements, I will tell you, my my ego still lights up like, whoa, Um, like people will notice me. I'll get accolades. And I have to force myself to slow down and ask, For what? For what am I doing this? And 
oftentimes the answer is the little demon in the back of my head is interested in money, fame, you know, accolades. And it's not because I want to help people or frankly, I love earning money still. Um, yes. the, the, the income versus time spent is a logical, uh, fair equation that it makes okay. sense for me to me to do it. Yeah, no, I, I feel lucky. And, I, and that's why I'm very fascinated by this whole topic, because I've been asked quite, I was lucky to have a mentor who asked me these questions. Of, mm. If that's the track you're on, that you just have to acknowledge that's the track you want to be on and, and acknowledge the sacrifices you will make, because there will be sacrifices mm -hmm. to be on that track. You've already done all of this and put it in your book nicely packaged for us to read so you can evaluate kind of what track you want to be on. Well, and one of the things I'll just mention about the book is that I have also created it's free, a downloadable self-guided journal that you can use if you, as you walk through the book, a lot of people have told me they've been making notes in the margins and um, folding over pages and other people have asked, you know, I, I process through through writing. Is there some kind of tool? So I, I recently put that together and it's up on my my website. And other Amazing. people told me they found it wonderful topic to talk about with friends. And in the financial services world, many advisors have told me they found it useful to talk to with clients. So I've, I've created a book club guide with the intention of helping people dive deeper it, yeah. into the yeah into the conversation in the context that makes sense for their lives and so both of those are up on moneyzen.com for free amazing and is there anything else for our listeners you know to connect with you other things they can find on your website so I, I love the idea of being able to journal around the book anything else they should look for on the website you know i am slowing down on this part of of my life and so i've been thinking a lot about how I can help people if I'm no longer taking on clients and I don't sell any products and I don't have any programs. And so the two things that I focused on are a periodic newsletter where I share what I'm reading and what okay. I think will have the highest impact on helping subscribers with their financial health mm -hmm. and or emotional wealth. And you can uh, sign up for that on my website, moneyzen.com. The other thing I'm really focused on, and I will be revamping for the new year, but there's still resources up there, is making sure that for either of those topics, I have a very curated list of resources, articles, podcasts, mm -hmm. books that people can use as they dive into financial health and okay. or emotional wealth. Amazing. And then where's the best place to order the book? You know, I hate to say this as somebody who loves books and I literally live right behind Powell's books in Portland, Oregon, but Amazon is I, the best I place to go get it. Okay. I wanted to ask because some people don't like to drive to Amazon. So I just wasn't sure. So yeah, you know, I, yeah. On my website, I have links to all the indie shops, which okay. I love to support. But for a lot of people, because they're Amazon Prime, shipping yep. is free. free. Okay, amazing. Okay, so everyone should look for your book then on Amazon, and then they can go to your website, moneyzen.com. The guides around the book, depending on what you're using the book for. Anything else for our listeners? This was yeah, so I, insightful. I just want to encourage 
people to feel comfortable bringing up these topics with their friends because one of the biggest themes in my research and writing the book was how many people felt this and felt that they couldn't talk about it. And in talking about it, I observed that so many people found solutions were tailored to them by talking about it with people mm -hmm. they trusted in their inner circle. circle. So you're not alone. I think that's the big message I want to leave people. You are not alone. If any of this conversation has resonated with you, you are one of a very large group of people. And the more you talk about it, the more you're going to help other people open up and think about it too. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's so important to be transparent and to be open and honest, especially not with everybody, but your inner circle, the people that you trust. And you can sometimes, you know, talking it out could help materialize a solution that you maybe yeah. you hadn't thought of. So, well, this was amazing. I'm so excited to have you on the show. I can't wait to share this with our listeners. And for everyone, we will link all of your information on the show notes. And then you can follow us for your most up-to-date up information on Instagram. Barbara, this has been such a fun conversation. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you so much for coming on. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.